الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين All praise is due to Allah سبحانه وتعالى May the blessings of Allah be upon his messenger Muhammad صلى الله عليه وعلى وسلم Sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Is that in brother our video and audio engineer inshallah is uh, of everything is taking care of it inshallah uh, once again we welcome you inshallah uh, at al-muntada al-islami uh, as you know we are uh, once again kicking off late uh, for this lecture which is supposed to have started really 20 minutes ago but uh, we apologize for all these delays for technical problems again and I don't know what is, uh, what is it I mean the second time Sheikh Ali is here in this place and for one reason or another there was a video show and it does not take place. So uh, <laughs> there's something about it. Uh, anyway, tonight's lecture, inshallah, under the title, The Ummah and Allah's Promise. And uh, our uh, time, inshallah, we have about 45 minutes for it, with another 10 minutes or so for questions and answers. Without further ado, I leave the microphone to Sheikh Ali at tamimi Alhamdulillah. والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وبعد. As we all know and, and witness, uh, we live in a very tumultuous time, a time in which uh, the events that we see and witness on a daily basis, uh, every month, every year, are events which, you know, rock and shake the very fiber of our being and often Muslims are perplexed and confused into how to interpret these events and how to react with these events and of course as the Prophet taught us the best of guidance in fact the only guidance is that of the Prophet Muhammad so what I'd like to do tonight is to take a hadith. So what I'd like to do tonight is discuss a hadith of the a hadith of the Prophet وسلم, which has a bearing to the time in which we live uh, that perhaps we may you know, benefit from this hadith, uh, some of its great meanings, and it might allow us to understand our role and also understand the circumstances and the situation in which we live uh, these days. The hadith which I have chosen uh, to uh, talk about is a hadith which is found in part in Sahih Muslim, although the hadith in its entirety is not found in Sahih Muslim, but in its entirety is found in other books of, of the Sunnah, like Abu Dawood and Ibn Majah. And the hadith is reported by the freed slave of the Prophet ﷺ, Thoban, wherein which Thoban anhu says that, Anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal, that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ زَوَلِي الْأَرْضُ فَرَأَيْتُ مَشَارِقَهَا وَمَغَارِبَهَا 
that the Prophet said that Allah joined together for him the earth so that he saw its eastern and western ends so the first part of the hadith is that we learn that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed this miracle this extraordinary event to occur to the Prophet that the Prophet while in Medina the earth was gathered before him so that he could see the eastern part of the earth and the western part of the earth and one you know obviously realizes this is a miracle because this is something which I mean typically you know one's human side can only see a certain distance and even if you were on an airplane you know some some uh, you know so many thousands of feet in the air uh, you can only see so much of the land below you but to see the whole earth you would have to be at a distance you know, from very far from the earth, millions of miles in order to see the earth. But yet the Prophet wasallam, while he was in Medina, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought to him the ends of the earth, so he saw it as if it was just in front of him. What did the Prophet wasallam, then see? The Prophet says, وَإِنَّ أُمَّتِي سَيَبْلُغْ مُلْكَهَا مَا مِنْهَا That my ummah, its dominion, will reach that which was shown or gathered for me so this hadith is a great bashara or a great good news that the Prophet ﷺ informed us of that his ummah its dominion its rule would reach until the ends of the earth to the far east as it could and to the far west as it could and this is what exactly happened for during the time of the Prophet's companions, عنهم, Islam spread as far to the west as it could. I mean, it went to the, the farthest reaches of Africa and the west, Morocco, by the Atlantic Ocean, and Spain. That was as far as west as it could, because what we call now the New World, or, you know, or North America and South America, was unknown. And likewise, to the east, Islam also spread until the reaches of China. It didn't you know, in the time of the Prophet's companions, it didn't go all the way to the uh, uh, to the end of China, uh, by uh, which would be the um, China Sea and so forth. But it did reach to you know to the re- the borders of China. It went through what we call today, you know, Pakistan and India and Afghanistan and and this area until it reached to the east, the western part of China. And then thereafter, of course, Islam spread further west. I mean, after the time of the Prophet's companions. And this is also an indication of the truthfulness of the Prophet Muhammad For here the Prophet informed while he was in Medina, and yet the Arabian Peninsula was not under the control of the Prophet or of the Muslims that his ummah would spread. And yet the Prophet also indicated to the direction it would spread. He didn't say it would spread that the dominion of his ummah would spread to the north and to the south. But rather he said it would spread to the east and the west. And that's why Islam, if you look at it, Islam didn't spread very north, the northern regions of the earth. I mean, Islam didn't penetrate northern Europe, for instance. It didn't penetrate, you know, Russia in the sense like Moscow and so forth. Islam didn't spread in that direction. And likewise, the south of the earth, with regards to, uh, you know, Africa, south of the Sahara, it also didn't spread and the dominion of the Ummah didn't last there, it didn't take over there. But to the east 
and to the West, the dominion of the Ummah. These lands became lands of the Muslims and have remained so uh, for these centuries, for you know, over uh, close to you know, 1,500 years or 1,400 years. So this is, I mean, an indication of the truthfulness of the Prophet ﷺ and also is, is good news about the spreading of the Ummah. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, so this is the, the second part of the sentence or the third part of the hadith, I was given the two treasures, al-ahmara wal-abyada, red and white, meaning gold and silver, because gold has a red tinge to it, and silver shines, almost has a white shining to it. So here the Prophet ﷺ said that not only would the dominion of his ummah, in terms of its, its, its rule, would spread to the far reaches of the east and the far reaches of the west, but also that the treasures of the world, the treasures of silver and gold, which is really, I mean, the, 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 the capital of the world, the money of the world, would be in the hands of this ummah. It was given to the Prophet ﷺ. And specifically it refers to here the treasures of Kisra and Qaisar, of the rulers of Persia and the rulers of Byzantium who the Prophet ﷺ said in another hadith reported by Al-Bukhari and Muslim and others, that verily you will take the treasures of Kisra and Qaisar and spend them in the path of Allah. In other words, the Muslims will overtake these nations and then their treasures will become property of Muslims and then the Muslims will then use that again in the path of Allah and jihad to spread Islam. So these are, you know, these first two parts of the hadith, I mean, we have first a miracle of the Prophet ﷺ, then we have an information of his ummah spreading to the Far East and the Far West. We have an information of the ummah being very rich, having the treasures of gold and silver. This is all good news. This is all you know, things which, which bring happiness to the heart of the believer and things which have occurred and have passed. And we still, you know, by Allah's grace, we still live in that blessing. I mean, for the Muslims, that you know, this blessing which was given by the Prophet ﷺ, even though... You know, the Muslims now in the state that they're in, but we still live in those blessings. I mean, still the lands, you know, outside of Arabia, like the lands of Iraq and, you know, Persia and, and Sindh and Hind and India and, and Afghanistan and, you know, these lands to the east, I mean, still give birth to people who, who say, La ilaha Allah, who worship, you know, Allah alone, who testify to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who enters the fold of Islam, and likewise the lands to the west, Egypt and, and the lands of northern Africa and so forth. I mean, this is, we still. These lands still produce Muslims and still produce people who testify to Allah's oneness and to the prophethood of the Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And so we still live these build uh, these blessings. And likewise, the treasures which Allah subhanahu wa taala had placed in these lands, whether gold and silver, and the treasures which have come thereafter, like oil, we still, as an ummah, enjoy these blessings of Allah And then the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam mentioned other matters of the hadith which are not is not good news, but it's things which, which bring fear to us. For the Prophet ﷺ then said, وَإِنِّي سَأَلْتُ رَبِّي لِأُمَّتِي I asked my Lord for my Ummah. I mean, Allah, the Prophet ﷺ is praising, praying to Allah for his Ummah. What, what is he praying to Allah for his Ummah? أَنْ لَا يُهْلِكْهَا بِسَنَا بِعَامَّةِ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not destroy this Ummah with a general famine. In other words, that the Ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa would not die of a general famine. 
And then the Prophet ﷺ mentioned a second matter to which he prayed to Allah Azzawajal for وَأَن لَا يُصَلِّتْ عَلَيْهِمْ عَدُوًا مِنْ سِوِي أَنفُسِهِمْ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not cause an enemy outside of them to overtake them. To the degree that this enemy would فَيَسْتَبِيحَ بَيْضَتَهُمْ That he would be taking over their, their main lands, their main uh, capital. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala replied to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with the following. The Prophet sallallahu says, وَإِنَّ رَبِّ قَالْ يَا مُحَمَّدٍ And that my Lord said, O Muhammad, إِذَا قَضَيْتُ قَضَاءً فَإِنَّهُ لَا يُرَدُّ That if I decree something, it will not be overturned. So here the Prophet sallallahu prayed to Allah for his ummah for two things that we do not die, we are not destroyed by a general famine, and that the enemies of our enemies will not overcome and take over us as a whole. But Allah said to the Prophet ﷺ, O Muhammad, when I decree something, it is not turned back. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet, وَإِنِّي And I have given to you for your ummah and la uhlikuhum bisana that I would not destroy them due to a general famine bisana amma that I would not make a general famine destroy them wa an la usallat alayhim aduwan min siwi anfusihim that I would not strike them or overtake them with an enemy outside of themselves fa yastabiha bayadatuhum who will then overtake their main lands وَلَوْ اجْتَمَ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنْ أَقْطَارِهَا Even if they were to gather from all the regions of the earth. So see what happens here. The Prophet ﷺ, this shows us how the Prophet ﷺ's care and love and concern for us. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, says that the Prophet ﷺ, I mean his care for us is more than our own care for our own selves. So he prays to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah does not destroy us with a famine and that Allah does not allow an enemy from outside of us to come and overtake us. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet what? Allah tells the Prophet that if I decree something, it will not be overturned. Meaning that to teach the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that in the end, and to teach us that in the end the matter belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is the one who decrees. And even if the Prophet makes a dua and entreats Allah Azawajal for something, it is up to Allah whether he is going to grant that or not. With him is the affair, and in his affair he has the highest wisdom. And yet, at the same time, Allah is merciful, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds to the dua of the Prophet wasallam and says, and I have given you, Muhammad, for your ummah, that I will not destroy them with a general famine, nor will I allow their enemy to overtake their lands, even if they were to gather from all the regions of the earth. And so here we have two new, you know, good news from the Prophet ﷺ. That one thing is that this ummah will never die of hunger. This ummah would never die of hunger. Yes, maybe part of the ummah might die of famine. And this has happened many times in history, and even in, in recent history. Parts of the ummah you know, might die in famine. Parts of the ummah might, 
you know, face these things. But the ummah as a whole, in the sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would destroy us all, so all of us would die of hunger, this will not happen. And in fact, this even shows us very clearly when the time will come, as the Prophet ﷺ said, which, when the time of a Dajjal, because when a Dajjal appears, before he appears, three years before he appears, a third of the rain on the earth will, will not fall. And then in the second year, two-thirds of the rain will not fall. In the third year, no rain will fall. And so the people will eat all the plants and, and all the all the, the animals, and so the people will face great hunger, I mean, humanity as a whole, you see. And what will happen? Well, the, they asked the Prophet wasallam, how will the Muslims be? The, the Prophet said that they will, you know, they will attain their nourishment by tasbih and tahmeed, by saying subhanallah and alhamdulillah and so forth. The ulama in the past time says, if you look, in, if you look at the... Uh, uh, the um, the, if you look at uh, uh, the Tariq al-Bidai wa Nihai by Ibn Kathir, the last volume concerning the signs of the hour, he says, Ibn Kathir says, that this hadith should be taught to all the children. Why? Because you don't know which generation is going to face uh, these events. So the ulama, some of the ulama say this hadith should be taught to the children because these children might be the children who are going to meet these events and so they should know that when this great hunger and famine comes when there is no animals or plants to eat because they've all died, right? Then therefore to know to say tasbih and tahmeed in order that will be their nourishment. So the point is is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised this to the ummah that he would not destroy us by a general famine. And likewise, the other great blessing that we got is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not allow an enemy from outside of us, meaning a non-Muslim people, to overtake all our lands, even if all the kuffar were to gather from all the world to fight the Muslims, they could not take us over, all of us over. And this is a great blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, some of the kuffar, or all the kuffar can take over some of the Muslims. Like these days we live the events in, in Kosovo, right? In Kosovo, the, you know, the, the, the kuffar have taken over the lands of the Muslims that are putting the Muslims to the sword and, and dispelling the Muslims and all, and all those events that are happening. But yet, could, could we imagine something like this happen? And we also see the same thing happens to Muslims in you know, the Philippines and in Burma and in Kashmir and in Iraq and in Palestine and, and, and many places in the world. But could we imagine a time when all the Muslims would face this and all the kuffar? No, this would not happen. This is a promise from Allah Azza wa Jal. And that's why even during the time of the, 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 high, the heyday of colonialism, as they said, you know, I mean, the beginning of the century, the kuffar still weren't able to take over all the Islamic world. I mean, eventually all the Islamic world fell to the kuffar, but still, I mean, Arabia uh, didn't fall uh, to uh, the, un the unbelievers. And they weren't able to plant a flag there. Uh, Yemen also did not fall to the unbelievers. Afghanistan did not fall to the unbelievers. So, you know, these regions of the earth still remained, the Muslims still remained, you know, ruling themselves. Even if the other parts of the Islamic world, it fell to the unbelievers at the beginning of the century, and they became, you know, ruled by the French and British and Dutch and, and so Russians and so forth. So then, but the hadith says concerning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not destroy them from an enemy outside of them, even if it was to gather from all the regions of the earth, but the hadith has a condition. The hadith then says, حَتَّى يَكُونْ بَعْضُهُمْ يُهْلِكُ بَعْضًا وَيُسْبِي بَعْضُهُمْ بَعْضًا 
that, and this would be true until some of the Muslims start killing some of the Muslims, other Muslims, and some of the Muslims start taking other Muslims as they're uh, enslaving them. When this happens, then uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will allow the kuffar to attack the Muslims. So, you know, we are protected so long as we do not kill and fight one another. And then the Prophet wasallam said in another narration outside of Muslim, in continuation of this hadith, like in Abu Dawood and elsewhere, وَإِنَّمَا أَخَافُوا عَلَىٰ أُمَّتِي الْإِمَّةُ الْمُضُلِّينَ That verily I fear for my ummah, the astray leaders. And the words that the Prophet ﷺ used, وَإِنَّمَا in the Arabic language indicates that it is the only thing which he fears. As if he fears nothing else for the ummah but that. And there's a connection. I mean, you see the connection between the, when the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah said that until some of them kill others, until some of them enslave others, and then the Prophet ﷺ said, and I fear for my ummah, the astray leaders, meaning the astray leaders, they're the ones who lead the ummah to kill one another, and they're the ones who lead the ummah to enslave one another. And here the leaders here is, is general. It doesn't just mean political rulers. But it also means any person who the ummah follows and sets them astray, whether it's a religious leader or a political leader. Even though it, it, it refers primarily to the political leaders. And if one now looks, I mean, if we want to now look at and apply this hadith to our times, one really does see how the astray leaders, be they political or religious, have set astray and have caused great harm to millions and millions of Muslims. I mean, you know, it's, it's something which you, we, should, we, should, we should contemplate, because it's, it's part of our religion. You know, who, do, who does humanity follow? I mean, alhamdulillah, and inshallah ta'ala, all of us here who have gathered uh, here this weekend, all of us in this masjid, I mean, men and women, we all I mean, consider ourselves to be from the followers of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I don't think any of us, you know, seeks to take as his example, as his model, other than Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so therefore we read about the hadith and we try to apply you know, his guidance in, in matters, whether regarding our appearance, our, our character, our worship, our dealings with one another, our beliefs. We try to spread his message. We wish to be raised uh, with him on the Day of Judgment. This is, we wish to meet him on the Day of Judgment, drink from his, from his, from his health, from his basin. So this, this is how we are people who have attributed ourselves to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But if you go in the Islamic world, you find that there are millions and millions of Muslims who do not, you know, def- define their identity with the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but rather they attribute themselves as followers of this person or that person. Whether it's a religious, you know, figure, right? Or whether it is a political figure. They're part of some sort of political party. I mean, it is said that when, you know, Jamal Abdel Nasser, who was a very popular political leader with the Arabs in the, uh, in the 60s and early 70s. It is said that when, he's, when he died, I mean, I, I didn't witness this, but I mean, I, I mean I, from what I've heard and, and read, that, that there was a great, you know, of sadness 
of his death because he had so many millions of followers among the Arabs. So much so that there were Arabs who started to take their guns and start to shoot up in the sky out of anger to Allah for taking away their leader. I mean, wh- whether this is true or not, I mean, I wasn't a witness, but I mean, I, I've been told this, you know. And, and one doesn't find this, you know, inconceivable to believe. You know, I went and read an article that said that, uh, I mean, so we don't just make it for the Egyptians, we'll give the Iraqis their, their fair share. Uh, and it is said that, you know, that in Iraq, that, uh, that the, the, the numbers of, of pictures of, uh, I read it one time in the New York Times, it said the numbers of pictures of Saddam Hussein is more than the Iraqis themselves. <laughs> But this is an example, this is an example of one of those people who the Prophet ﷺ forewarned against. Because you see, I mean, this is the personality cult that's, that's around this figure, you see. That, you know, that they, they make movies about, you know, his lifestyle and, and, and how, you know, and pictures of him and all these different, you know, actions and so forth. And they, and they make a whole persona and a whole mythology around this person. And so people are raised upon that. People in, in schools are taught that. Uh, people start, you know, seeing themselves as, you know, extensions of him and so forth, and they're giving their life and their and so forth, their souls for him and so forth. And and these are al imat al-mudallin that the Prophet ﷺ forewarned about. These are the people who the Prophet ﷺ forewarned about in the other hadith, in the hadith of Hudayfa, that there will be people calling to the hellfire, right? They will speak our tongue and be of our min uh, jildetina, from our complexion. Whoever follows them, they'll cast them to hellfire. And likewise in religious leaders. Like Khomeini, who was a fitna for millions and millions of Muslims. I mean, not just the Iranians and the Shia, but those people who consider themselves to be Sunni, Sunnis and so forth. How many millions of people, you know what I'm saying, went, uh, followed him in, his world, in this world when he came out? And look at what, I mean, I witnessed, look at what happened during the time of his death and the outpouring at his graves, and until now, I mean, he's a fitna in life and in death, because if you, you see pictures of his gravesite, they built like a Kaaba over his grave, and people go there and pray to him and entreat him and make tawaf and give vows to him and so forth. That's an example of a religious leader. I mean, even though he was a political leader in the end, but the, you know, the point is, is that these are al those who set people astray. And likewise, I mean, if you go through, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. You find among some Sufi orders that a person will have a person who neither washes himself, doesn't make salah doesn't pay zakah, does all sorts of immoral acts, and yet people will think that he's from Allah's awliya, and he'll have millions of followers, who, who if you were to say anything about him, they, w- they would rip you into shreds. I mean, this is something which is, which is a fact among human beings. And in the West, in the, or in the, in the East, in the non-Muslim lands, whether in China, with Mao, for instance, whether, you know, in, 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 whoever these people, these tawaghit among human beings who people follow and worship, I mean, this is all. The, but the Prophet ﷺ said, that he fears for his ummah these, these, you know, astray leaders. And the fact got so bad with this ummah that you find the people in this ummah, they blindly follow non Muslims, like among, when it was popular in the, in the, uh, uh, the 20s and the 30s until the 60s where you found many Muslims you know, among Arabs and non-Arabs who, who took Marx and Lenin as their model and they, and they used to call each other you know, Rafiq, comrade and so forth and you know, thought themselves as an extension of the great Marxist revolution this is part of you know, they all start to shave their beards and put these mustaches like Joseph Stalin and, you know, I mean, but that was, that was, that was, the, the, that was their, their example that was their similitude 
And then the Prophet said, وَإِذَا وَقَعَ عَلَيْهِمَ السَّيْفِ لَمْ يُرْفَعَ إِلَى يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ That if the sword befalls this ummah, it will never be raised until the Day of Judgment. In other words, once the ummah starts fighting amongst itself, once bloodshed occurs between this ummah, then this sword will not be raised until the Day of Judgment. And this is exactly what happened. Once the Muslims killed one another during the time of the Khalifa Uthman, when they, when they killed their Khalifa Uthman, since that time, the history of the Islamic world has just been bloodshed of Muslims killing Muslims. I mean, if you look at, if you read a history, like the history of Ibn Kathir, I mean, you're surprised in it that if you go through the years through it, I mean, you'll come through certain times, you know, where that Ibn Kathir will mention some battle that occurred between the Muslims and the non-Muslims. But in comparison, most of the years, the issue that Ibn Kathir mentions is a great event of that year, that so one Muslim leader sent off his army to kill another Muslim leader and they sacked the city and they you know, uh, raped the women and they, and they burnt down their homes and they killed the people and they killed the children and then the next year they came back with so forth so that's, that's, the, that's the, the reality of, of the Islamic you know, world that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, the Prophet has informed us that, that Allah decreed that once the sword befalls the ummah it will never be raised until the day of judgment Although in another hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not let two swords befall this ummah. A sword from outside of itself and a sword from within itself. And so therefore, whenever the Muslims are engaged in jihad, then they don't fight themselves. Because this is Allah's you know, blessing that He has given us, that Allah will not allow two swords to befall this ummah at the same time. I mean, Allah will not allow the Muslims to be fighting an enemy outside of themselves and at the same time be having some sort of you know, uh, warfare between themselves. And that's why, I mean, you can even see this in contemporary times. And when the jihad in Afghanistan were dealing with the Russians, right? I mean, the fighting between the different parties, uh, Mujahideen party and the camps, was limited. I mean, it did occur, but it was very limited. As soon as they finished fighting uh, jihad uh, against the Russians, what happened? The, the fighting started to come about themselves, you see? Because once the sword befell the Ummah, then it will not be raised until the Day of Judgment. And that's why, you know, when the great battles occur before the Day of Judgment, you know, like the, the wars against the Jews and the, and the Antichrist and the wars against the Christians, you know, the Prophet called the Melhamet al Kubra, which they refer to as Armageddon. I mean, once these affairs, uh, the, uh, during that time, there will be no inter warfare because the Muslims, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not allow two swords to befall the Ummah at the same time. Then the Prophet said, وَلَا تَقُومُ السَّاعَةُ حَتَّى يَلْحَقُ حَيٌّ مِنْ أُمَّتِي بِالْمُشْرِكِينَ That the hour will not be established until a group of my ummah will join the pagans, the mushrikeen. A hay means like a tribe in the Arabic language. That, that the, the day of judgment will, will not occur until a group of my ummah, a tribe of my ummah, joins the mushrikeen. Now, here, according to the Arabic grammar, the word tribe either means any tribe or it means some important tribe of Muslims. I mean, depending upon how you want to say it's ism jins or it's not. I mean, is, is it a, um, um, a noun which represents a class or is it re- represents a specific tribe? But anyway, the point is, is that, I mean, the, pr- probably it's, you know, ism jins, I mean, it's, it refers to 
a, uh, a group. And so therefore, it means that the Muslims will, the dangers will not occur until the Muslims hook up with the Mushrikeen. It's very interesting. If you look at the commentaries on this hadith, written by the classical scholars, the classical scholars explain this hadith in light of uh, the Muslims becoming apostates. All right? Because to them, a Muslim joining the mushrik would only occur if he left his religion. I mean, why would a Muslim join the mushrikeen? If you look at contemporary scholars explaining this hadith, they explain it in a different sense. They, they, they add that meaning, they, they confirm that meaning, but they also say it applies to those Muslims who went to live amongst the non-Muslims and chose to live amongst them instead of amongst the Muslims and then starts to resemble them in dress and in custom, and eventually it resembles them, of course, in belief and in action. And I remember I asked um, one time, I mean, uh, Muhammad Nasruddin al-Albani, Sheikh al-Albani, on the telephone uh, regarding this hadith uh, some years ago. Uh, is this hadith applicable uh, to uh, the, the large numbers of Muslims who come uh, to, you know, live in, like, the West and so forth? And, and the Sheikh Nasr, he said, I, I don't find that far-fetched. He said, I don't find that far-fetched. So, I mean, this is another sign of the sign of the Prophet wasallam that the hour will not be established until, you know, tribes of the Ummah. And if you find now, um, you know, I mean, even though it's, it's part of, um, it's part of, I mean, it's, it's, it's planned the way they do it, now what you're finding is you're finding whole sections of the Ummah being transported to the non-Muslim lands. Even though it's deliberate in this case, I mean, for instance, I mean, it is said that in Yemen, right, that that, that there's a policy uh, in Yemen that in those areas, uh, villages where there is a high level of Islamic awareness, all right, that there is a, uh, for instance, um, that Islamic da'wah is strong in, in those areas. Uh, those people from those villages are given visas to to immigrate to the United States. You see, and so you have what has happened is whole villages have have picked up and moved en masse to the United States. Now, obviously, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a hidden agenda here, right? Because if, if you want to weaken Islam, and you get all the religious people to pick up and leave and go to the United States, to the Dearborn area of Detroit and so forth, and you know, join Little Yemen over there, then you know, uh, what happens is then you've, you've, you've done two things. First of all, you weaken the Islamic identity for their next generation, and at the same time, you have also, you have also, you know, uh, weaken the Islamic da'wah in that country from spreading. Okay? And, and the same thing, uh, you know, it can be said, what's happened with the Kurds, uh, you know, where, where whole, you know, whole, you know, regions of people, uh, same thing with the Bosnians, and, and, and now, according to what we hear in, in, the, in the newspapers and, and read, um, uh, uh, hear intelligence and, and read in the newspapers about the uh, people from Kosovo, you know, the Kosovars, right? The whole idea of taking them, you know, en masse and just moving them to live with the Mushrikeen, where they'll lose their identity, you know, um, and, uh, and, irrespe- and plus the fact of the, the millions of Muslims who, on their own accord, you know, try to come to live amongst the non-Muslims on a yearly basis and apply for, um, you know, if you ever hear about, the, whenever they announce the, uh, in the United States, whenever uh, they announce there's a lottery for uh, green cards, you know, uh, you just see how the people rush to the American embassies in the Islamic world through the hope that they might win the lottery to get a green card to go and immigrate to the United States. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, and, and the Day of Judgment will not come until groups of my Ummah worship 
idols. And the word uh, wetan in Arabic language doesn't mean idol in the sense, just like an idol, but it means any sort of representation which is worship. So it includes graves, and includes you know pictures, and includes idols like stones and so forth. And then the Prophet said, وَإِنَّهُ سَيَكُونُ فِي أُمَّتِي كَذَّابُونَ ثَلَاثُونَ كُلُّهُمْ يَزْعُمُوا أَنَّهُ نَبِيٌّ وَأَنَا خَاتِمُ النَّبِيِّينَ لَا نَبِيَّ بَعْدِي Then the Prophet said that there will be in his ummah 30 liars, all claiming that they're a prophet. And there is no pro- I am the seal of prophets, there is no prophet after me. So here, see how the Prophet is, is expressing in this hadith how there is a corruption in the shahadatain. You see, in the, the first part of the shahada, in La ilaha Allah, you have groups of Muslims now who are joining the mushrikeen, who are showing their adherence to them, who are resembling them, who are living with them, and at the same time you have groups of the ummah who start worshipping idols. So this is, this is attacks La ilaha Allah. And then you have 30 false prophets and so therefore, if they're false prophets, they have followers. So here, there is a negation of the testimony of Muhammad Rasulullah. So in other words, it means that there's a loss of just the essential, basic meaning of Islam. And the Prophet said that, that, that he is the final pro- prophet. There is no prophet after him. And, and these false prophets began to appear from his time. I mean, the first false prophet who appeared was Musaylaba and Al-Aswad Al-Ansi, who appeared in the Prophet's time. And then after the Prophet wasallam in the time of Abu Bakr, Sajjah, who was a woman from the Bani Tamim, she appeared. And there was, uh, there was Talha, or Tulayha, who appeared also. And then there was, uh, in the time of, the, of the, the end of the Sahaba, the time of the Tabi'een, there was Al-Mukhtar al-Thaqafi. And false prophets have continued to appear. And in our century, I mean, in the United States, you find three groups of Muslims who follow three different false prophets. You find the Qadianis, who follow, follow Ghulam Ahmed, who appeared 100 years ago. You find the, uh, uh, the, the Nation of Islam, the followers of Farrakhan, who follow Elijah Muhammad. And you also find the followers, the 19ers, right, who follow Rashad Khalifa. So you have three groups of people who follow a false prophet in our times. And this will continue until the final false prophet appears, who's a Dajjal. Because according to some hadith, when a Dajjal first appears, he first, you know, calls himself a Mujaddid, and, then the, and so some people accept that from him, and then he calls himself the Mahdi, and some people retract, but still some people believe in him. And then he calls himself a prophet, and some people retract from his message, but still some continue to believe with him, until he finally calls himself Allah. And so, so, so this is, you know, uh, the, prophet, the prophet is now showing about how the aqidah is being attacked. And then the Prophet said, وَلَا تَزَالُوا طَائِفَةٌ مِنْ أُمَّتِي وَلَا تَزَالُوا طَائِفَةٌ مِنْ أُمَّتِي عَلَى الْحَقِّ مَنْصُورًا لا يضرهم من خذلهم حتى يأتي أمر الله تبارك وتعالى. Another hadith لا يضرهم من خذلهم ولا من خالفهم. That the Prophet ﷺ said that even though with this there will remain a group of his ummah upon the truth victorious. They will not be harmed by those who quit them, who abandon them. I mean, in other words, instead of Muslims coming to their assistance and aiding them, they abandon them. They just leave them. They said, well, you know, let them whatever happens to them, these guys are extremists or whatever, we just let them occur to them what occurs to them. Or who go against them, who actually openly oppose them and fight them. But they will remain victorious upon the truth. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the, uh, the end of the lecture, and I, I wanted to talk in detail. I mean, this was just an introduction, because the, the idea of the, of the lecture was to um, talk about the menhaj of this victorious group. But let me just summarize 
Right, just for a minute or two. Let's make a deal here. Yes, okay. okay. <laughs> you read that carry on, inshallah. Uh, this is the proposal I put for you, inshallah. Okay. I hope you will not turn it back. Yeah, and you will go on until the end of the lecture. At 8 o'clock, right? And you do what you do, you're doing. Uh -huh. Until 5 past 10. Uh, 8, right? Okay. 5 past 8. And then we come back after salah, inshallah, for half an hour. I, I have no problem Is with that, that's okay. That's okay. Sorry, I will stop at about 10 past 8, okay? You mentioned about the East and West. Yes, sir. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. So, Amir Tamur. All of present-day Russia, Siberia, Moscow, Finland, Lebanon. During the time of Abbasi Khalifa, southern Siberia was under Muslim. Yeah. The bet was under, you know, they accepted Muslim authority. During the time of uh, Khalifa believed in Muslim Malik. Kutaba, then Muslim bin Bali, he asked China to accept the authority of Khilafah because they are from Manabatin, Zatun, up to Spain and Portugal. So he accepted and paid this tribute to Muslims. Then. Could you hurry up, brother, please? Then I'm finishing. And the Muslims even went to America. They were ruling with Aztec. They went 500 years before Columbus. Nah. Inshallah, I'll, I'll, address, I'll address these points, inshallah, in, in the questions and answers. Inshallah, I just want to... Yes, Jazakallah. Yes. Before the Qiyamah comes, those Islam will spread everywhere. You're absolutely right. Inshallah. So, uh, where was I in lecture? Uh, yes, so, <laughs> Naam. So, so then, so the Prophet said that there will remain a group upon the, of the Ummah upon the truth, victorious. They will not be harmed by those who go against them or those who quit them. Okay. So this shows us the reason as to why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't destroy us with a general famine and why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't allow an enemy from outside of us to conquer us all. Because there remains upon a group of the Ummah upon the truth. Had there not been a group of the Ummah on the truth, then there would be no reason for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to preserve us. I mean, Allah only preserves us and keeps us and doesn't destroy us when we're on the truth. Once we retract from the truth, then, then we're open for Allah's punishment. So if this, is, if this is, you know, I mean, Ibn Majah, when he used to recite this hadith, and when he would come to the conclusion, he would say, you know, ma ahwala, you know, how, how tremendous or how, you know, scary is this hadith? Because if you think of every single sentence of the hadith, I mean, it really is something which shakes you if you, if you think of its implications and you reflect it. And we didn't give justice to the hadith because, I mean, obviously the time and so forth. Uh, but it's really, I mean, the hadith, I mean, we, should, we could do a, like a whole series of lectures just on this hadith, you know, nine lectures on this hadith itself. And, and yet the Prophet ﷺ did tell us in the end that the conclusion there will always remain a group of his ummah upon the truth. So, therefore the, the, the preserve for us and the protection for us is to be with this party which is upon the truth. 
But the question then comes is, how do we know who this party is? How do we know how, what are their characteristics? How do we know where they are? And here we should understand that the Prophet ﷺ didn't leave anything in this religion which is unclear, but rather he explained to us you know, their characteristics. If you gather all the ayat of the Qur'an, if you gather all the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ concerning those upon the truth, you will have a list of characteristics and qualities. And that is this group. Among their qualities is that they are upon the truth. And we know the truth is the Qur'an and Sunnah, so it means they are upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah. I mean, we cannot imagine that this group, this party, this ta'ifa to be other than upon Allah's book, upon the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. So that should be our first characteristic in order to distinguish who they are. That there are people who are upon the Qur'an and upon the Sunnah. But of course this needs for us to have knowledge, right? Because if we do not educate ourselves to what the Qur'an is teaching us, and to what the Sunnah is teaching us, then we wouldn't know who's claiming what, you see. Because everybody might claim that he's in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, but I mean, how do we tell the true claimant from the false claimant, right? We have to have some sort of knowledge, we have to have some sort of criterion. And this is the same reason why when a person is asked in his grave, right, the three questions by the angels, as in the Hadith of Sahih Muslim, and then the Muslim says, you know, the, and my prophet is Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The angels will say to him, how do you know that? Ah, see? You have to have knowledge. What will the person say? I recited the book of Allah. And so I recognize that. So he recited the book of Allah. And so then he knew that the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was his messenger. In other words, he had knowledge. Because the book of Allah is the foundation of all knowledge. And now... So the point is, that's the first characteristic. The second characteristic is that the Prophet ﷺ said in this hadith of a ta'if al-mansura that, that they are, in, in other narrations of the hadith, that they're qahirina li'aduwihim, that they subdue their enemies. And another hadith says, yuqatiluna, that they fight. So therefore they're an ummah which is not just upon the, the Qur'an and the sunnah in a theoretical sense. But they are people who are actively upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So much so that they actually fight. Because jihad, as the Prophet ﷺ said, is the pinnacle, right? The, the apex of Islam. The, the pinnacle of Islam is al-jihad fi sabilillah. I mean, there's no act that comes after jihad. And that's, when you reach jihad, that's the pinnacle. I mean, of course, jihad, in order for it to bear its fruit, in order for a person to be rewarded, there has to be iman in Allah, there has to be iman in the Prophet ﷺ, there has to be ikhlas, there has to be itiban, and all these other matters. But the point is, as an expression of those beliefs and those uh, acts of worship in the heart from you know, fear of Allah and love and hope and tawakkul and, and so forth, the, the greatest expression of that is al-jihad. <coughs> and so therefore, this is another of their characteristics. Now, the fact that they're upon the truth and the fact that they are, <coughs> you know, waging jihad doesn't necessarily mean that they're always engaged in armed conflict. Because there might come times when they're not actually fighting, but, but they could be engaging their enemy through da'wah. They could be engaging their enemy through commanding good and forbidding evil. Likewise, if they are, the Prophet wasallam said they are unharmed by those who quit them, who abandon them, who leave them alone. In other words, they're not willing to sacrifice like their sacrifice, or go against them. So it means another of their characteristics is that they're patient. 
Because here the hadith clearly states that people will leave them alone, will quit them, and people will go against them. But they're not harmed by that. So it shows that they're patient and severe upon the truth. You know, sometimes people are upon the truth until the fitna comes, right? And then, you know, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in qalaba, he, he goes back. He turns back. He no longer can persist upon that once he's tested in his religion. But this group, no. No matter what they face. And they obviously face great matters. Look what, the, well, look what this group is facing. They're facing the kuffar who are coming to, to take over their lands. They're facing people who have forgotten the meaning of la ilaha Allah. And so they've joined the mushrikeen, they've given their allegiance, so they start resembling them or start living with them. Or they start worshipping idols. They are dealing with people who believe in false prophets. The greatest of whom is a Dajjal. So there are those who fight a Dajjal. They are dealing with those astray rulers who the Prophet for, for, uh, forewarned and feared for his Ummah for and those other astray religious leaders. They are dealing with those astray rulers who the Prophet ﷺ for, for, uh, forewarned and feared for his ummah for and those other astray religious leaders. So with all these great matters they're dealing with. So obviously they're patient. So they're upon the truth. They're upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah. They are waging jihad, waging commanding good, forbidding evil, committing da'wah, reviving this religion, bringing back the people to the truth. They're patient and constant and they persevere upon that. That's their manhaj. And the Prophet ﷺ referred to them as a ta'ifa, as a group of people. And according to the Arabic language, a ta'ifa doesn't necessarily have to mean that there are many. They could be very few in number. In fact, they are a minority. Because the Prophet ﷺ taught us in other hadith that his ummah would divide into 73 groups, 72 would be in hell, and only one would be in paradise. So they are a minority. They're not the majority. At times they can be the majority. Like in the time of the Prophet's companions. The Sahaba, they were the Jama'ah, and they were the Ta'if al-Mansur, and they were the Firqat al-Najiyah, and everything was gathered with them, and they were as-Sawad al-Azam, they were the great majority. But in later times, they became very few and far apart. They became al-Ghuraba, the, those who are alienated, the strangers, who last time I was here in November, uh, we had a whole uh, session of lectures regarding Al-Ghuraba. And so, so this is something which we need to do. And, you know, from this, it brings us to understanding what is the road or the path of salvation for this Ummah. The path of salvation for this Ummah, the road out of all our difficulties and all our trials and all these tribulations which we face, is what? To stick to this path of Atayf al-Mansurah to revive this menhaj, this belief, this practice, this conduct, this da'wah, this outlook amongst ourselves and amongst the Muslims around us. And it's, it's a long, arduous path. It is a path that we need to spend our, our time in learning and acting upon 
and giving da'wah to and being patient upon. Because we will face opposition. Those who try to take, seek shortcuts and figure by, you know, well, if we do this, you know, that's a too long of a path, and we want to just do it like this, those shortcuts will never lead anywhere, but only will, you know, their, their results, even if they're well-intending people, I mean, the results will not bring any fruit. And that's why, for a lot of what we, we consider now the Islamic movements, right, this, this great movement to revive the religion, a lot of their efforts haven't really borne the fruit you know, and we're, we're part of that, I mean, efforts, right, as youth, of Muslim youth. I mean, we, we live in the blessings which Allah showed us, but a lot of those efforts never really bared fruit as it should have. Why? Because that manhaj and methodology was not adhered to fully. And so, because of that, the fruits never came out, were not bared um, as it should be. And so, therefore, you know, in conclusion, we, we, we must take Islam as a whole. And it's important that we understand that in order for us to, as the Prophet ﷺ said, that that if you deal with uh, the ina trade, which is the trade which is a type of riba trade, which is done to appear like a halal transaction the sharia, but in reality it's a type of trickery which is done, an artifice. Uh, it's done like, for instance, uh, you know, I want to buy something from you, and I don't have the money. So uh, what I'm looking for is really for you to loan me the money. So I'll say, I'll buy you from you for, like, I'll buy you this tape player from you uh, for $10. But I don't have the money now, so I'll pay you in a year, okay? So you say, okay, here, here it is, and you can pay me back in a year. And then you right after that say, well, I'll buy it back from you for $5, and here is $5. So what's happened now, basically... You know, I've got $5. You still have your property, but yet I owe you $10. So it's a way, instead of you coming and saying, well, I would like to borrow from you $5, and, and you say, well, you have to pay me back 10 it's a way to do this riba by looking like some sort of trade. So the Prophet said, So in other words, Muslims are trying to find shortcuts in their religions. They're trying to make for themselves, you know, that which is haram, halal, but trying to put it under a sort of religious context. وَأَمْسَكْتُمْ بِأَذْنَابِ الْبَقَرِ and you hold on to the, the tails of cows, and you're pleased with agriculture. In other words, people become content with worldly pursuits, you know, just living this life, this worldly life, not willing to sacrifice, not willing to, to work for Allah's religion. What will happen? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will strike you with a humiliation which He'll never raise from you. Oh, and also the hadith says, وَتَرَكْتُمُ الْجِهَادَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ You forsake jihad in the path of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will strike you with a humiliation which you'll never raise from you until you return back to your religion. So, the way to save ourselves from this fitna, from these tribulations, these great tribulations, which are only getting greater, because as we come closer to the Day of Judgment, the fitna has to become greater. I mean, as you come closer to the Day of Judgment, the, the, the infighting between the Muslims become greater. I mean, we, we've seen throughout history the infighting between the Muslims, and between, for instance, between the Arabs. But before the Day of Judgment, there will come a fitna, which the Prophet ﷺ said, that a fitna which will yistanzifu biha al-Arab, and which will wipe out the Arabs. I mean, imagine that. I mean, the Arabs, if, of the Ummah of Muhammad ﷺ, if you look at the, um, of the ethnicities of the Muslims, the, the greatest number of Muslims are, are the Arabs. I know most people say Indonesians, but that's not true. Because, yes, in terms of citizens of a Muslim country, 
or of a Muslim land, there are more Indonesians than anywhere else in the in the um, uh, in the world as citizens of a political entity. But in terms of ethnicity, in terms of the language they speak, and you know their their their, their tribal grouping, right? There are the, the Indonesians are, represent many many tribal groupings. So when you start dividing them into their different ethnicities and so forth, the, the leading ethnicity. Uh, uh, whether it's whether language grouping or you know you say by um, racial grouping are, are, the, are the Arab uh, the Arabic people so and yet the Prophet said that before the day of judgment there will come a fitna which will wipe out the Arabs so in other words will wipe out you know the whole crux or the whole center of the Islamic world so this is this is something which is which is a great something to fear for this is something which and the Prophet said if the sword befalls the Muslims it will not be raised but yet this fitna will grow until this, and the Prophet said the day of judgment will not come until there is much haraj. They asked him, what is haraj? The Prophet said, al-qatlu al-qatl, you know, killing of people. And the Prophet said in a hadith that before the day of judgment will come, there will come days when a Muslim will kill his brother and neither he will know why he killed him nor the one who he killed will know what, for what reason was he killed. So this is the growing of these fitnas. Likewise, if you look at the ummah retracting from the aqidah in terms of following the ways of the kuffar. This is something which is in the great increase. It's not, not something which, is, which dies out, but rather the Muslims, as every year goes by, we start following the ways of the Jews and the Christians, and it becomes more and more of the ummah. I mean, when, when the colonialists first came to the Islamic world, who were the ones who followed the unbelievers in terms of their dress and in terms of their appearance and their ideas? Just the few elite of the, of the society, the rulers. And then, what happened? Well, then the educated group became that way, those who came to the West and studied. And then, now, right, you find it's commonplace among the Muslims. I mean, even now, in the isolated areas of the Islamic world, because of the existence of satellite dishes and so forth, you know, people start seeing these images and start emulating the unbelievers. And in terms of, also, the false prophets, the strength of their message increases. I mean, if you look at you know, Musaylama and these false prophets, I mean, their fitna was for what, a year or two years, and then it came to an end. But look at Ghulam Ahmed al-Qadiani. How long has his fitna lasted? For more than a century. Due to the weakness of the Muslims. And how many millions of followers he has. And yet, and this will increase in numbers until the greatest false prophet appears, the greatest liar, a Dajjal, when great numbers of Muslims will follow him and believe him to be Allah. So much so that the Prophet said in some hadith that a man will fear for his, his, his women folk that he will tie them up in, their, in his home not to let them go outside because they might hear a Dajjal and, and therefore follow into his fitna and believe in him. So people will tie up, a man will tie up his mother or his sister or his daughter or his wife not to walk out and so you wouldn't go outside and maybe follow a Dajjal. These great fitnas. And likewise, the great wars in terms of the Muslims, the conflict between the Muslims and the unbelievers, I mean, the great wars that will occur before the Day of Judgment between you know, the Muslims and, and the Jews and their leader, the Antichrist, the Dajjal, or the Muslims and the Christians, with the Prophet called Al-Malhamatul Qubra, the greatest battle. And these great, these great fitnas. So these fitnas grow, grow in direction and grow in, in its, in its, in its uh, intensity and it's an enormity, and so therefore, the efforts to check them have to be greater. And the struggle to stay upon the straight path is, 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 is greater. So much so the Prophet said that among you, before you are days of patience, 
Ayamul Sabar, where, where a person holding on to his religion is like a person holding on to a hot coal. Anyway, there, those are some thoughts of this hadith, regarding this hadith. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to keep us on his straight path um, and forgive us our sin and give us knowledge in his religion and good action. Brothers and sisters, we resume this uh, evening's session, inshallah, the lecture, which was uh, as titled, Dhamma and Allah's Promise. Uh, I did uh, say, inshallah, we have about half an hour for uh, addressing your questions, inshallah. Starting with a note from the sisters, which I made me laugh a little bit. Assalamu alaikum, sisters. Have uh, sent many questions for you. Will you be answering them? Jazakumullah khair. I think we reconsider the position of our courier service. <laughs> Perhaps coming on the camels. Okay. 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 How will this ummah? This is a question from the sisters. How will this ummah be judged as there is no Islamic state, uh, thus enabling us to gain the best rewards? Also, so much deviation, current is that current? Sorry, cor- corrupt. corrupt leaders and bid'ah and lack of easy knowledge, especially revert women uh, who are not. Yet married, and marriage is not a notion. Is that a option. option right now? Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala Rasulillah wa So the sister said, "How will this ummah be judged as?" It's been disturbed again. I think it's hard to carry on with this uh, the sister asked, how will this ummah be judged as there is no Islamic State? Well, I mean, in one sense, we will be held, we're held responsible for that fact, because the fact that there is no Islamic State is a reflection of the ummah. I mean, I mean, if the Muslims were pious and uh, affirming to Sharia, then Allah wouldn't put us in the situation we're in. But since the Muslims are not of that characteristic as they should be, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us leaders as which reflect us. I mean, these leaders didn't come from the moon. I mean, they came from the people. And, and, and there's a, I mean, there's a, in many ways, uh, these rulers are a reflection of, of how the people in that, in that land are, uh, in good and bad. Um, now, so, in that sense, but don't forget, in the end, I mean, we should be more concerned of how Allah is going to judge us on our personal, I mean, matters. I mean, you know, it's very easy for us to be concerned about there's no ummah, there's no khalifa, there's this problem or that problem. But in the end, when Allah will raise us in the day of judgment, He's going to ask us, first of all, the, the issues that, di- that deal with us as individuals first, and then we'll be asked about the issues that deal with the ummah as a whole. So we need to straighten that out first, our relationship with Allah. Um, so that that's enabling us to gain the best of rewards. I mean, obviously, if there was an Islamic state, we would be, you know, in a better uh, position. Also, there's so much deviation, corrupt leaders, bid'ah, lack of easy knowledge, especially for women who have reverted, who are not yet married, and marriage is not an option right now. And in fact, I don't think it's the, the situation is, you know, unique to our sisters who have reverted. I think the sisters who were born Muslim, whether they're married or unmarried, are neglected. You know, I mean, this is... 
I mean, this is something which we fail to pay attention to. The Prophet ﷺ's sunnah was that he used to establish a day during the week where he would teach the women. And so therefore, you know, I mean, Islamic organizations, you know, uh, like al Muntada, I mean, I, I don't know what they might have, especially women's program, I don't know, I'm not trying to, uh, I mean, find faults with al Muntada, but, uh, but the, you know, chips fall where they may, as they said. But, but that, you know, that, uh, that the point is, is that, I mean, it's important that there is special programs for the sisters. So I think just like you have, you know, a, um, a lecture series, there should be one which is just for the sisters only. And so those ways, and that way that the sisters who have uh, children and so forth, you know, the brothers during that day, their husbands, you know, should take care of the kids and so forth and allow the sisters just to come and learn and not have to worry about the children at the same time. Likewise, during the week, there should be a special sister session where a brother, if he's married and he has some children, he should, you know, take care of the kids for an hour or two, watch over them and let, you know, let their wives come and study the religion. Now, if there's a sister who can come and teach them, who's proficient, alhamdulillah. If not, a man should sit and teach them and answer their questions, but there should be some sort of you know, barrier or veil between them and, and inshallah ta'ala. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to I mean allow us to apply that sin of our Prophet. Let's do some marketing for the Muntada now. Uh, well uh, glad to announce that there is a uh, a day of seven hours dedicated for women, alhamdulillah, coming up. This has been arranged in association with the a group of sisters from Andrasiha. Uh, this is going to take place on the 8th of May, and this is an announcement, you could take it, sisters. It's a day of lectures for the sisters, by the sisters, uh, to be held at Al-Mundada Al-Islami on the 8th of May, inshallah. Further details will be released later on. There are some printed uh, announcements on the boards for your information. Right, uh, the next question, inshallah. You said that Muslims will not have to fight non-Muslims and Muslim enemies at the same time. Why then are Muslims fighting each other in Afghanistan and they are fighting Kuffar in Palestine? No, I, 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 if, if, I gave, if I gave the impression that there would never occur a time when Muslims would have inner fighting and at the same time there a jihad would be going on, then that's mistaken. I mean, I, I didn't mean to convey that... Uh, uh, but what I did mean to say is that the Prophet ﷺ has told us that Allah would not put two swords to the Ummah at the same time, in the sense that near the Day of Judgment we would not be in the situation where the Muslims would be fighting themselves and fighting the Kuffar in those great battles. And even amongst a group of the Ummah, you usually, if you look at the Islamic history, when the Muslims were waging jihad, they stopped fighting each other. Now, that doesn't mean that I mean, Muslims elsewhere who are not engaging in the jihad are not fighting each other. So for instance, if you look in Islamic history, when the Muslims of Asham and Egypt um, decided to deal with the issue of the Crusades, the, the fighting between themselves ended. Okay? As soon as Salah al Ayyubi died, they started to fight amongst themselves. I mean, between his two sons, they started to fight as to who would you know, become in charge in the, in the year of his death. And then a few years later, his brother, their uncle, came into the situation, and then finally it settled. And so, and even they came to the point where some of some of Salahuddin al Ayyubi took from the, the Christians, they gave it back to the Christians in order to get the Christians to help them against their brothers and their, you know, uncles and so forth. Uh, 
but, but while the jihad was going on by Salahuddin al-Ayyubi and before him by Nuruddin al-Zengi, that against uh, the Christians, still the Muslims were fighting uh, each other in Spain, in, and in northern Africa, in elsewhere in the Islamic world, because those Muslims were not engaged in a jihad against the kuffar. And, and the same thing occurred uh, a century before that, or a century and a half before that, when Mahmoud al-Ghazni, uh, Mahmoud, uh, of, uh, who fought the Kuffar in India, and was unbelievable. I mean, I mean his 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 victories and his jihad against the Kuffar. If you read, I mean, his history in the like in Ibn Kathir's history, uh, unbelievable events. But th- he was doing that in the eastern part of the Islamic world, in what is Afghanistan and Pakistan and India and so forth. He was fighting in these areas, and yet at the same time, the Muslims in Iraq and in Persia and in Arabia and in Syria were fighting amongst themselves. So, because they weren't engaged in jihad. So, that's the understanding. And then definitely, before the Day of Judgment, I mean, this fighting will stop between the Muslims when these great, you know, battles occur, these great events. Uh, likewise, just in the terms of a da'wah point, you know, usually brothers who are not engaged in da'wah and its type, which is a form, da'wah is a form of jihad and teaching and learning their religion and commanding good and forbidding evil, what, what do they end up? They end up fighting them amongst themselves and talking about each other and calling, well, this person is not, you know, so much on this way of the Salaf, and this person is, you know, one-third Salafi, this person is two-thirds Salafi, and he's one-eighth, and he's one-sixth, and so forth. Why? Because, you see, the jihad has been removed from their hearts, and so, therefore, then they, instead of putting their efforts against the unbelievers in da'wah and in commanding good and forbidding evil and in jihad, they turn it against themselves. So, this is Allah's sunnah. This is a point of view followed by a question. The mass migration of the mass migration of the Muslim Ummah from the Islamic, or I'd like to call it Muslim states, yes. to the non-Islamic states has been uh, an, is- an Islamic global problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, from my imagination, this problem may not be overcome for many of the migrants migrate on educational and business grounds, yani basically. As such, what advice do you suggest to these migrants living in the totally non-Islamic societies in terms of communication and overall approach with the non-Muslims? This question, I mean, is, is, a, is a timely question and opens up a lot of topics, uh, which, I mean, is difficult matters. I mean, in general, uh, let's be honest with ourselves. I mean, even though maybe specifically we might have an excuse with the law as individuals, specific individuals, as to why we're living amongst the unbelievers. Somebody might say, well, I was born amongst these people and Allah guided me to Islam. There's no Muslim man to make hijrah to. Other people might say, well, I'm born from Muslim people, but I was born in these lands and I've been cut off from the lands of the Muslims. A third person might say, I've been persecuted for my religion and, you know, over there in a Muslim land where I was living in, I faced, you know, the the gallows or whatever, and I was persecuted, so I was forced to come, okay? So, I mean, people have, individually, might have their excuse between the law, but if we look at the experience of Muslims in non-Muslim lands as a whole, the general experience, is it positive or negative? I mean, it's negative. I mean, how, how could we deny that? I mean, we have to be, you know, honest with ourselves. I mean, you know, yes, a lot of good comes because the Muslims' presence in the non-Muslim world. We have a freedom of association. We have a freedom of da'wah. A lot of Islamic charity work comes because Muslims can gather money in the, in the, in the Islamic world. Generally, our communities were more wealthier. A lot of people, you know, we give da'wah. A lot of 
you know, we, people have been able to escape, you know, trials and turmoils in their lands and so forth. So there's positive. I mean, it's not a completely black picture. But in general, the experience of the Muslims living amongst the non-Muslims has been negative to their religion. And I don't think anybody could really argue with that. I mean, the amount of, even with people coming into the religion, the, the Muslims we lose on a, on a daily and monthly and yearly basis from the, from the sons and daughters of the Muslim Ummah, how far outnumbered that those who are coming into the religion. So, I mean, this is a fact. Uh, now, at the same time, I mean, you know, if a person comes to study or for medical reason or for business reasons, but he doesn't settle, then, then, then there's no prohibition in the Sharia. I mean, the prohibition comes because I mean, basically the, the, the kuffar are two groups. There are those kuffar who are considered to be in a state of war with the Muslims. And there are those kuffar who are not necessarily in a state of war with the Muslims. In general, I do not think you can describe the lands of, of the Western countries as being in a state of war with the Muslims. Because, I mean, if you were to, I mean, if you were to look at the Muslim here, that, that doesn't mean that they do not war against the Muslims in terms of his governments and his policies. But they're not in a state of war because a Muslim can, you know, we gather, we pray, we fast, we're not molested, we're not harmed, and so forth. I mean, if now if you were a Muslim in, in a Serbian-occupied land, right? the way you'll be dealt with is completely different. You see? Because those people are in a state of war with the Muslims. You see what I'm saying? But these people are not in a state of war with the Muslims. I would think from a strict Sharia sense. And, and some people might disagree with me in that, but I think in general you would say that we're not in that state of war. Because when you're in a state of war, then you see how like, the Muslims are treated within Palestine with, amongst the Jews, or the Muslims are treated in Serbia, or in Serbian-controlled lands, or you know, in um, Hindu-controlled lands, or you know, those clear examples of how the persecution is. So, in this case, for a Muslim to be in a non-Muslim land on a temporary basis, for some sort of, even for a worldly matter, this is halal in the Sharia. It's permitted. I mean, even in the time of the Prophet his companions, among them Abu Bakr and others, went to the lands of the Kuffar to for trade and so forth. So, there's no harm in that. A Muslim can come and he sets up a business and stays for you know, a period of time, but he's not becoming a resident where he now says, my residency and my home and my land and you know, where I will live the rest of my life and I'll be buried and so forth is this land. I mean, he's coming here to go to school for three, four, six years and go back. He's coming here because he needs medical treatment. He's coming here because he's giving dawah for a period of time. He's coming here because he's doing some sort of business and that is uh, permitted. As far as you know, us living in a totally non-Islamic society in terms of communication and overall approach with the non-Muslims, we should take the Prophet's example in Mecca and in Medina. I mean, how did the Prophet you know, live in Mecca with the non-Muslims? How did the Prophet live in Medina in the first part of the, Med in the Medina period among the non-Muslims? Because at that time, in the, when the Prophet first came to Medina, the non-Muslims were the majority. I mean, even though he was maybe the authority in Medina, they were still the majority. So how did the Muslims deal with them? If we study this fiqh, we, should, we will know how to deal with a general non-Muslim society. Also, if, even if for Muslims who are persecuted, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not give us such detailed examples of how the children of Israel lived under Pharaoh, except to show an example on how to conduct yourselves in times of persecution. And so there, you know, examples you can take also, I mean, you know, you can use... Uh, from the example of Musa alayhi salam, when they were under you know, Pharaoh's persecution, there are some evidences that we can use. So, in general, that type of, uh, uh, type of uh, um, relationship is that, first of all, the Muslims are a clear entity. That, that the Prophet sallam, I mean, in the time of Mecca, they were clearly distinguishable from the unbelievers in terms of their belief. 
It doesn't necessarily, I mean, in terms of their outer appearance, one doesn't necessarily, I mean, have to be different from them in terms of dress or in terms of language or in terms of food we eat or something like that. I mean, as long as we don't fall into the haram. But, um, but in terms of beliefs, they were, they were clearly different. I mean, the Muslims realized that they were different, they had different beliefs, and the pagans realized that they were people of different beliefs. But at the same time, there was communication, and there was uh, um, a communication between them. And the Prophet ﷺ used to you know, use every single means possible in order to spread the message of Islam and communicate it. He tried to keep good ties with the people and tried to convince them with gentleness and with kindness. So this is something we need to do. I mean, we need to, we need to be able to, as Muslims in a non-Muslim society, figure out the balance of preserving our identity and it, at the same time, becoming fully, um, uh, I don't want to say members, but fully active in the society, in the sense that we, our influence and our da'wah and our presence is, is felt. And this is something which we, we're failing to do it now. You have one group of Muslims who see the importance of that, but they, they only understand for them, in order for them to do that, they need to then cast off their Islamic identity. So they become more and more Europeanized, more and more Americanized, not just only in their, in their attitudes, but it comes to their beliefs and so forth. So, and they're willing to even say that, well, yeah, Jews and Christians and Muslims will all go to paradise. I mean, willing to cast off a very central doctrine of, the, of our Islamic beliefs in order to, thinking that by doing so they'll win some favor. And then you have another group of Muslims who feel, who see the error of that way, but they go to the other extreme. And so they feel that in order for them to preserve their Islam, in order for them to be Muslims, they have to separate themselves totally to society. So they, they live almost like in the shadows of society. Uh, they, they have no role whatsoever. They don't you know, pursue their rights. They're not active in their society. They don't know who their neighbors are. They don't give dawah to the non-Muslims. And they're just sort of like living on the edges of society. In, in, and, you know, this is also an unhealthy situation. So how do we become active members of the society and, you know, are able to spread our Islam and keep our identity? This is, I think, the question which we are facing as Muslims in the next uh, you know, few years. And it's something that if we don't define our identity and the terms which we want to live on, it will be defined for us. And that's the, the scary part. This is uh, a confusion in the mind of the person uh, writing the question, inshallah, to clarify. You quoted the hadith that the Prophet said, my ummah will divide into 73 groups or sects and one will go to heaven. And you said two will enter heaven. Please explain. Well, I, I mean, the hadith says that, that the Prophet said that his ummah would divide into 73 groups, uh, 72 would go to hell, and one would uh, uh, go to uh, heaven. So if I said two would go to heaven, I mean, I, I misspoke. That, that's, that's just as simple as that. So. Okay, we like to... Yes, uh, the question is, could I clarify with the word uh, sect? Well, the, terms, the, term, the Arabic term is firqa, and firqa means group. I mean, you know, we use the word sect, but that's, that's sort of a, an incorrect translation, because when you say 73 sects, you're sort of saying that the group which is on the truth is also a sect. You see what I'm saying? So that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bad translation, but it's a popular one which, I mean, I and others sort of fall into so but so 73 groups you know uh, or, or now what makes a group that's the question uh, that's something which I discussed uh, 
the last series uh, last a few months ago on al Ghuraba. But in general, a group comes about for one or two reasons. Either they have a belief which deviates from the major beliefs of the people of the Sunnah, and so that they become distinguished by that belief. For instance, that they revile the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. That distinguishes them from the majority of the Muslims who, who, who observe the rights and honor the Prophet's companions. Or they deny Qadr, which distinguishes them from the main body of Muslims who wish believe in Qadr, uh, for example. Um, or alternatively, even if they, maybe their beliefs, they haven't shown that type of deviation, but in terms of the practice of Islam, they have deviated in many particulars, so many particulars that uh, it results in that their practice becomes a practice which is not distinguishable, which is, which is not, uh, uh, which a practice which is not in, um, in, um, in congruence with the practice of the main body of Muslims. So, either by having a belief which deviates from the beliefs of the main bodies of Muslims, or alternatively, by having a lot of, you know, innovations in the practices, right, in the different acts of, of, of worship, or the acts of mu'amalat, so many, so many that, that it becomes a different type of practice than the practice of the main Muslims. Brother Sof says with the issue of Khalifa, he wrote two questions. Well, he's writing his thoughts really. Will there be a Khalifa coming out, uh, over till the Day of Judgment? Then he says, for me as a Muslim of 26 years, will I be able to witness the glory of Islam or a Khalifa ruling in my lifespan? Okay. Let, me, let me answer the last part of the question. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, لَيْسَ لَكَ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ شَيْئًا You have nothing, I mean, in terms of controlling the, this affair. So the affair of Islam, whether it will be victorious or not, whether you'll see the victories of Islam or not, that's not, not in your hands. This is something which Allah will decree when He wants to decree it. And so therefore, I mean, your responsibility, as it is responsibility of every single Muslim here, is to worship Allah and to strive to win Allah's pleasure. And then if Allah blesses us with seeing the fruit of our labor in this world, then Alhamdulillah. And if Allah does not bless us with that, then Alhamdulillah also. Allah, the, the affair returns back to Allah. And that is why um, the Prophet ﷺ, although he said, for instance, about like the hadith we studied tonight, the hadith of Thawbah, where the Prophet ﷺ said that the mulk, the, the sovereignty of his ummah would reach you know, as to what he was gathered before him, to, I mean, the Far East and the Far West. And yet, the Prophet ﷺ did not witness any of that. The Prophet ﷺ said that he was given the two treasures, the red and the white, meaning gold and silver, yet the Prophet ﷺ did not see that in his lifetime. This all came after his death. But yet, it was given to the Prophet ﷺ. So, so these promises have been given to us collectively in the Ummah, whether we see it or not, uh, w is is up to Allah and we shouldn't be we shouldn't be preoccupied with the results. I mean, obviously, you know, فَبِذَارِكَ فَلْيَفْرَحُ. I mean, in in this, if it was to happen, we would be very pleased, right? I mean, who would not, you know, what I'm saying, be pleased? But whether it actually occurs uh, or not, that's for Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Um, now, as far will a khalifa come before the day of judgment? Yes, a khalifa will come before the day of judgment. I mean, and and it doesn't necessarily have to be a khalifa upon the truth but that the Muslims will be 
um, you know, ruled by uh, by khulafa before the day of judgment is affirmed, and some of these khulafa will be khulafa upon the truth, ruling us and judging this ummah and, and, and leading this ummah according to the minhaj or the path of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Similar lines of thoughts. Uh, we we all know that Islam will gain glory in the future, but will it end in a decline before the day of judgment? Is there a reference on that? Uh, yes, I mean the pro- the Prophet sort of informed us that uh, before the day of judgment there will come a wind, which will take the soul of every person who has any iman in his heart, even if that iman was just as little as a mustard seed. And so that only those who will be left on the earth will be the most evil of the creation. The Prophet also told us that before the Day of Judgment, the Qur'an will be raised from the face of the earth. And so therefore, uh, Islam will continue until just before the end of time. And because the Day of Judgment will be established, when the Day of Judgment comes, the people on the earth will be the most evil of mankind. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not you know, establish the day of judgment upon the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa in the sense that there would still be people who are upon tawheed and upon you know, worshipping Allah and reading Quran and so forth. In fact, the Prophet said in a hadith, the day of judgment will not be established until there is no one on earth who says Allah, you know, uh, calling unto Allah. Okay, I'll let you read the final question, inshallah. Okay. Uh, would it be correct to say that a Ta'if al-Mansura represents more than one group? That mean, and, that means, and that this means these groups who are upon the correct manhaj of adherence to the Qur'an and the Sunnah should cooperate together? I was particularly thinking of groups that are calling for correct adherence to Islam, starting with the foundations which would be called uh, Salafi, are those who also see corrupt concepts, and those who also see corrupt concepts like secularism, Capitalism, democracy, should they not cooperate and study together and to get a better understanding to revive the Ummah? Yes, I mean, first of all, a Ta'if al Mansura does not have to be, as Imam al Nawi explained, and as I pointed out on those lectures on Al Ghuraba before, it doesn't have to be a single group and a single place and a single time, but you could find some people here and some people there. Yes, before the Day of Judgment, they will all be gathered in Syria, in a sham. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made the affair of this ummah such that its affair began in Mecca and its affair will end in Palestine, in Syria, in this area. Just like the creation, right, the earth was created from Mecca and the day of judgment the people will be gathered in Palestine. So this is, you know, Allah's qadr, that this is the beginning and the end. And likewise, the lifespan of the ummah its beginning and end. And likewise, the Isra of the, of the Prophet ﷺ was from Mecca to Jerusalem. So you see, this is all tied into Allah's Qadr, you know, and His uh, decree, His uh, creative decree. So in the end of time, they'll be all gathered in a sham, you know, being led by first by Al-Mahdi and then by Isa ibn Maryam alayhi salam. Um, However, though, uh, it doesn't mean that before that time they would not be scattered in different places of different groups. Uh, should those people on the correct menhaj? Of course, I mean, that, that's, that's a question which doesn't, I mean, shouldn't be answered. I guess the brother's asking the question only because 
He wants the answer to be conveyed to the people. I mean, obviously people who are under the correct manage of adherence to the Quran and the Sunnah should cooperate together. And then the brother said, I was thinking particularly of groups that are calling for the correct adherence of Islam, starting the foundations which would be called Salafi, you know, uh, why they should not study together and get a better understanding to revive the Ummah. Well, see, the problem is, is that people are of different levels in understanding. And there do agree, sometimes there exist differences between scholars. Sometimes these differences of opinion are differences of ishtihad in which both parties are praiseworthy. Sometimes there is a right and a wrong opinion. Sometimes both opinions are wrong. It depends upon the issue. Now, the majority, you know, of us, you know, brothers, I mean, we can say that all of us, we are, you know, I mean, at best, you know, we have a little knowledge of Islam. I mean, none of us are scholars in the true sense of Islam. And the majority of us are muqallidun. I mean, we are still, you know, making, uh, you know, having the quality of taqlid, following blindly. So if a person is a muqallid, then it's not permitted for him to call to an issue in which there's a difference of opinion in. And this is where the brothers make the mistake. For instance, let's take an example of an issue which deals with fiqh. It's not an issue of manhaj, okay? The scholars of the sunnah are of a difference of opinions that does a person first when prostrating, does he put his hands first or does he put his knees first? Depending upon which version of the hadith of Abu Hurairah they consider to be more accurate. Now, if you are a brother who wants to follow the sunnah, so you take one of those two opinions, unless you're a student of knowledge of hadith or if you're a you know, scholar of hadith who you can have some sort of ability to distinguish between the different arguments, linguistical and hadith technical arguments and arguments of fiqh and so forth, then why you are, it's impermissible for you to call to either of those two madhahib. So if a brother now comes and he says, oh brother, you see, you shouldn't put your knees down first because the sunnah says that I sh- you should put your hands first. And he's a muqallid in that issue. Then his calling to that issue, even if that is the strongest opinion, is still blameworthy and he's still sinful. Because to negate somebody's act, to say that somebody's act is wrong, to say that somebody's position is wrong, requires that you have knowledge which is, you know, more than just knowledge of your position, but that you know his position, and the reasons why his position, now you have the ability to distinguish and know which of the two positions is correct. As opposed to, as opposed to saying, well, I was taught, or I had heard that the Prophet ﷺ's sunnah, is to put his hands or his, his knees first. This, in this matter, this is permissible because here you're only conveying what was reported to you. You're not saying that necessarily that the other position is wrong. And the same things would come with the other issues. So for those issues which are not, you know, those issues, the clear issues of the religion. I mean, there are some clear issues of religion which nobody should, you know, ha- have any confusion with. Like the ayat of Surah An-Nisa. The ayat of Surah An-Nisa which is known as Ayat al-Hukuk al-Ashat, the, 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 the verse of the Ten Rights, which is similar to the Ten Commandments. It begins, you know, وَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا Worship Allah and do not associate others with Him. Or like the concluding verses of Surah Al-An'am, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, tells us of the different things, and He says, وَأَنَّ هَذَا صِرَاطِي مُسْتَقِيمٍ And this is my straight path. Or the uh, Ayat in Surah Al-Isra, uh, uh, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions, وَخَذَ رَبُّكَ لَا تَعْبُدُوا إِلَّا إِيَّا 
and, and then after we're talking about Tawheed, he says, well, bilwaridayni ihsan, and talks about a number of rights and so forth. These are the clear pillars of the religion. Or like when the Prophet ﷺ said that the kaba'ir are seven. I mean, these are clear matters which no two Muslims should, you know, differ. Or in the Prophet ﷺ, when he asked him, what are, is the action which is most beloved to Allah? He said, the prayer upon its time. I mean, you know, these issues, if we revive it amongst ourselves, and we teach it, and we preach it, and we, we practice it, then that, there's enough in that that we can move much forward. But when you come now to the issues of difference, and the issues of difference is jihad, even if one of those opinions is blameworthy, for us to delve into it, unless you have knowledge, and you understand the usul of the sharia, fiqh and hadith and language and so forth, so you can know that why that opinion is wrong, you know, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't condemn that. Because what you are is a muqallid, and the muqallid is not allowed to call to a madhab or refute another madhab. And if the brothers, you know, um, understood that principle of usul al-fiqh, which is a principle from the principles of Ahl sunnah wal-jama'ah, and they adhere to that, then all these differences and all these commotions that, you know, we constantly hear about and differences and disputes, which just come to an end. Because all the brothers would say, well, yes, I'm only a muqallid in this issue, and I only have a little knowledge of religion, so I'm going to stick to preach the major matters of religion, and the major good deeds, the ma- leaving the major kaba'ir, the basics of my aqidah, the basics of akhlaq and adab, and I'm not going to worry about all these issues, because this is an issue which is not, you know, in my realm. I mean, I haven't, I haven't grown in my religion, in knowledge and so forth, to delve into these issues, then none of these differences would appear. But because brothers, you know, this is, how, this is Satan's, you know, trickery, you know, pushes the brothers, so the brothers, they jump from, from, from the basics, all of a sudden they come to these issues, you know, very deep and delicate issues to which, they, I mean, they don't have really any knowledge of either the waqa, the reality of the ummah and what's going on, or the issues in terms of the sharia. Anyway, that's just some words of advice which I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, you know, uh, bless us uh, with uh, myself and, and my brothers and sisters. أقول خوري هذا واستغفر الله ولكم سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك أشهد أن لا إله أنت أستغفرك وأشهد إليك جزاك الله خير شيخ as you said this is all what we have time for and uh, we had to put some questions aside which are not related to the topic discussed tonight uh, and the rest of questions may be addressed later on إن شاء الله uh, as you notice the screen behind me has uh, been erected again this means that we are going to show you something on the screen for which I call upon Brother Muhammad Al-Najjar to brief us on what we're going to see in the next 15 to 20 minutes, 20 minutes inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. Can you help me to move this? Yes. this film will not take more than uh, 14 minutes. Uh, it's about the activities of Al-Muntadal Islami worldwide. Actually, I was asked by some brothers to uh, tell you about the activities we have 
because some some of the brothers they don't know that we have some offices outside the UK and uh, I thought this is a good opportunity to uh, show you this video and have a chance to uh, explain something about the activities we have especially in Africa and in Bangladesh before we start um, I would like just to mention a few figures and few numbers because these, these figures may, may not be mentioned in the video uh, for your information uh, we have Alhamdulillah al al Islam we have 14 offices uh, including uh, uh, this office and uh, Al-Bayan office in Riyadh and Alhamdulillah uh, by the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we have uh, achieved many things during the last 10, y 10 years for example just few examples um, uh, I got some statistics from some brothers in Africa for example in Mali uh, um, about six villages during the last few years embraced Islam a total number of 3,000 3, people embraced Islam by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and uh, then the uh, 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 dua working there and uh, for example I tried to get some uh, numbers the mosques in, uh, in Ghana uh, Al-Muntadar Islami has uh, 64 mosques in Nigeria we have 17 mosques in Bangladesh we have 22 mosques in Kenya 33 mosques in Somalia we have 13 mosques in uh, uh, Uganda 12, 12 mosques the uh, number of people who embrace Islam in Nigeria for example the last statistics we have is about uh, 2522 uh, some of the uh, activities we have there, for example, the uh, Quran circles. In Ghana, there are 69 Quran circles where we have over 2,000 students there. And 42 of them memorize the whole Quran, alhamdulillah. In Kenya, there are uh, 250 students there who are memorizing Quran. In Benin, and this is one of the 12 countries, it's a, a small uh, 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 country but we have some activities there inshallah in Bangladesh there are more than 6,000 students studying in a Muntadar Islamic school and there are many activities in different fields because our mission is focused on the education and da'wah alhamdulillah uh, there are many uh, schools and uh, uh, small mosques dedicated for tahfiz uh, Quran what you will see inshallah now is just a brief uh, idea about the activities of Al-Muntadar Islami and if you have any question inshallah I will be here to answer any question you have and if you want to clarify anything because I know people they hear things about Al-Muntadar from outside Al-Muntadar and our policy